Welcome to The Report Card with Matt Malkus, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. In the wake of the coronavirus pandemic, districts around the country are facing significant budget shortfalls. One solution, of course, is simply to give schools more money. That may very well be necessary. But another approach is to look at how districts are currently spending their money and to identify ways that they could spend it more efficiently. That's the topic of a new hot off the press volume, Getting the Most Bang for the Education Buck, co-edited by the Fordham Institute's Brandon Wright and AEI's own Rick Hess. On this episode of The Report Card, I talk with one of the contributors to that volume, Chad Alderman, about teacher benefits, what they are, how they're actually hurting teacher salaries, and how districts and states might dig their way out of the deep benefits hole they're in. Chad is a senior associate partner at Bellwether Education Partners, where he serves as the editor of teacherpensions.org. Chad, thanks for coming on the report card. Thanks for having me. Chad, right out of the gate, I'm just going to admit that for the average listener, teacher benefits are not the most flashy topic in education. So first question, why should the listeners care about them? I mean, shouldn't we be more concerned about teacher salaries than teachers' benefits? So I'll say two things here. One is we started this website, teacherpensions.org. We thought it would just be a wonky resource for people who really cared about pensions. It would be a repository of content. And over time, we found that teachers are actually searching out information that they're not getting from their state plans. And so our traffic keeps rising and rising year after year from individuals who are asking about it. So there are people out there who are very interested in this topic. Why should the the lay person be interested is the second point, which is that as education spending has gone up, less and less of that money is making its way into the classroom. So it's becoming less efficient. And benefits are a big part of that story. Pension costs, healthcare costs are eating up the dollars that we are spending on education, which makes them less efficient and less useful for the workers who are themselves, as well as for taxpayers who are trying to get the most bang for their buck in how they spend their education dollars. Okay, so you're telling me that if you care about education spending, and you know that teacher pensions and healthcare are eating up a greater share of the dollars that you know might go to sort of the classroom, the, the primary function, then you should care about teacher benefits. Am I getting that correct? That's right. Yeah. Over time, teacher pension costs have risen much faster than inflation, much faster than teacher salaries, which have compressed how much we can spend on salaries, how much we can spend on everything else, just eating into district discretionary budgets. Right. So let's set this up just for now. And I'm going to follow this with a question, but we should keep in mind that teacher salaries are one thing. That's sort of like their pay. And teacher compensation is a different, larger thing that teacher salary is a part of. And the big parts left over there are pensions and healthcare. That's right. All right. So you mentioned both. Let's start with pensions. First, for those of us who've grown up in a you know 401k IRA world, what is a pension and how do they work? A pension is essentially a promise. So it says if your benefits when you retire will be based on your years of service multiplied by what's called your final average salary. It's usually your average of your last three or five years of working multiplied by some uh, factor, usually let's say 2%. So if you have a final salary of $50,000 and you have 25 years of experience and your multiplier in your state is 2%, you get 2% times 25 years, so 20, 50% 
of your final average salary is 50,000. So you get $25,000 pension is how the math works out. And that's paid out in monthly benefits for life. It's guaranteed for life. Some states have cost of living adjustments, so it'll grow a little bit as inflation rises as well. But that's essentially how a pension works. It's based on a formula. It's not directly tied to contributions that either you as an employee or as your employer make into the system. Uh, that falls on the employer to match up how much they save today to pay for the benefits tomorrow in the future. And that is really what's driving some of the cost issues is those assumptions and uh, how much plans save for how much they'll need to pay tomorrow is not matching up over time. But the interesting part about this is that pensions are, like you said, it's a promise. So the pensions that we have to pay today were in some sense promised to be spent a long time ago. So this is sort of baked in right now. This isn't like a 401k decision that you make now that may go up or may go down, but that will define sort of what you get. Now, in your chapter in getting the most bang for the education buck, you lay out a, a pretty hard marker here on pensions. You say uh, teacher pensions work sort of like Ponzi schemes, which don't have a good reputation. Strong words. Uh, how are they like Ponzi schemes? I, I resisted this term for a long time. People would say Ponzi schemes in the pension world, and I resisted it because it sounds really bad. It does. Bernie Madoff was not a good guy, right? It's, no, he wasn't. And he a bad rap. It is a bad rap. But the truth is a Ponzi scheme is essentially you need more people to come in and contribute to pay off the promises you made in the past. And at its base, that's sort of what pensions are doing right now. The new generation of teachers has less generous benefits. States keep cutting the formula rules for their pension plans, and contributions keep rising on both the workers themselves and the districts. And so it is like we're asking the newer generations to pay for the promises of the past. And there's, unless states make a change, that is likely to keep happening. And they need to make a change both on their accounting side and how they account and budget for the promises they're making. And they also need to make a change on the benefit side of how they actually award workers' benefits. But a, a key portion here is, you know, you talked about how they can increase their contribution rates, either from the district side or for the employee side, but all those things don't affect their prior obligations, right? They can't just say, hey, we're not going to pay you what we promised we pay you. The promise still holds. That's right. So that is what we in the pension world call unfunded liabilities. And they are promises made to current retirees and current workers, uh, money that should be there that's not. And it's not that it all has to be. Sometimes when I say this, people get mistaken. They think that it means that all the money that will eventually need to be there has to be there today. It actually means that even the money that's there today isn't forecast to grow enough to pay for what's in the future. And so even with the plan's own assumptions about how fast money will grow, it's still not enough. Um, and that's what the unfunded liabilities are. So, Chad, uh, I have a feeling that the term actuarially required contribution rates is going to come up, right? Uh, you, you've written that one of the best ways to think about this is to think about actuarially required contribution rates. So let's get into the weeds. What does that mean? Yeah, so a pension plan will hire actuaries to estimate 
how much the benefits they've promised in the future are worth, and then how much they need to pay and contribute today to make those benefits, promises, payments in the future. There's a lot of assumptions that go into that in terms of how fast stock market investments will grow, how fast a worker's salaries and wages will grow, even things like how many workers will be contributing into the system, how long retirees will live. So the, the plans need to make all those assumptions, and then they come up with the term is called actuarial required contribution, and it means that how much the plans should be contributing in that given year. That does not, the reason we use that term is that because that's what plans should be contributing. Unfortunately, they're, they're not. And uh, particularly some bad actors, states that don't contribute as much as their actuaries tell them, dig the hole deeper and deeper. It's sort of like if you're paying off your credit card and you get your minimum monthly payment, you make that little monthly payment, but you're not essentially digging into the principal sufficiently over time. So let me ask you about this from a different perspective to see if I've got this concept right. If I'm a banker and I'm going to make a mortgage. The terms of those mortgage, you know, I got some uh, bean counters in the back and I say, tell me what I have to charge in terms of an interest rate to make sure that I make money on the back end of this loan. If you're a district and you're not getting actuarially required contribution rates, you're sort of like the bank that says, uh, oh, I'm going to make this loan, even though I know I'm never going to make any money off of it. Is that right? Yeah, another way to look at it would be mortgages. So in fixed year, 30-year mortgage, you have a flat rate that you contribute over time and it's fixed. It, you know, there's other things like taxes and things that can change, but the mortgage itself is fixed. Pensions don't do that. They use essentially an adjustable rate mortgage where they assume all these things that are going to change over time about how fast investments will grow, how fast salary will grow. And if those things are wrong and they have an incentive to underplay those things because they don't have to contribute as much in the present this year. And, and so what happens over time is that the, the, the principal keeps growing even as the plans are making some payments, they're not making enough payments. Let's talk about the proportion that pensions take out of total compensation. Chad, in your chapter, I think you say districts pay an average of $16 for every $100 a teacher makes in salary, $16 goes to pensions. Explain that to me. So pensions are paid out as a percentage of salary. And so for every teacher, the pension plans need to pay 16% of their salary towards the pension plan. And if uh, that, that's a good way to think about that is if you're paying $100 to a teacher, you need to also pay $16 to the pension plan. The, that's the employer contribution. Sometimes it's split by districts. Sometimes the state contributes some of it or all of it. That, that's where the money is going from the employer side into the pension plan. So how does that compare to, you know, like your typical 401k? I mean, I don't think my employer's pitching in 16% of my salary. Yeah, the typical 401k in the private sector is more along the lines of 3 4 5% of salary from the employer side. And I will say that the pension side, much of that money is not going to pay for benefits. If your employer in the, in the 401k plan increases your contribution rates, their contribution rates, the benefit will go to the employee. The employee gets more money into their plan. That's not the way pensions are working. Because they're based on this formula, the, the formula is what determines benefits. 
contributions are something separate. And so contributions are rising, are rising even as benefits have, have fallen over time. Aha, the, the Ponzi scheme, no? Yes, that's the Ponzi scheme of contributions rising from the employer and the employee side, even as the benefit formulas get worse. Right. So all that goes to existing sort of pension holders and existing pension obligations, not to the people that are employed and in the time that those payments are made. Right. Oftentimes, they're many years later, decades later from when the promises are made versus when they're actually paid out. All right. So let's talk about the growth in these things over time. Employer contributions, you said in the chapter, what the district pays on behalf of teachers have about doubled in the past 20 years. And employee contributions, that's the money that teachers see deducted from their paychecks, have also risen. Not as much, but they've also risen. So that's a lot of money going towards retirement benefits. Let's talk about what they get out of it. I mean, surely their benefits are going to be better than the private sector with so much money and so much increases in that money over time. The benefits really depend on who the worker is. So in the 401k space, if you have higher contribution rates from your employer, you get better benefits. It's very simple. In the pension space, it's not nearly as simple because of this disconnect that I mentioned. Even as the employer contributions rates have have risen, employee contribution rates are rising the actual benefits that the employee receives have been worse. So if you go back to that example I gave you, the multipliers are changing. They're being reduced for new workers and the uh, what's called the normal retirement age. So when someone can actually start collecting benefits has been increasing as well. Those are two of the key mechanisms that states have been using to cut their costs and the pension fronts uh, for new generations of workers. Yeah, new generations of workers. I mean, it sounds to me like a lot of teachers and districts are getting hosed by these pension plans, right? I mean, does that affect how hard it is to attract new folks to the profession or maybe even to keep the, the folks that we want to keep in the classroom? Yeah, so we've, there's a couple of ways to think about this. There's the recruitment side, there's the retention side, and then there's the phase-out side of when people go to retire. So on the recruitment side, what's more important is the the salaries. Salary, base salaries are the best hook that districts have to recruit workers. In particular, the pensions, these are statewide plans. So if a district is competing with other districts within their state, the pension is the same. And so there's no competitive edge there. And the way that the pension plan benefits work, they really benefit people who stay a full career. So if you're going to work in a, in a state, you're going to teach for 20 or 30 years, then you do pretty well under a defined benefit pension plan. But that leaves everyone else with uh, much less benefits. And so someone who's short or medium term, 5, 10, 15 years, uh, is not getting a very good benefit from the system. Even 15 years? Even 15 years. If you start at 25 and you teach till age 40, your pension, when you go to collect it at age 60 or 65, will be based on your salary in the year of when you were 40, the last year you left. And of course, the longer you teach, number one, your salary rises over time. Yep. So the, the whole benefit you get is calculated on that last salary. And not only that, but what, you got 2% a year in inflation. So if you cut out early, and especially if there's a gap between when you stop teaching, when you collect your pension, you're going to get a much lower payout than somebody who stayed there 
and ended up with a higher salary, more number of years, which may be fair, but also where inflation just works on a higher basis. Yeah, some of this sounds fair as we describe it. So older workers get better benefits, the longer term workers get better benefits, higher paid workers have need more money in retirement. That all sounds fair, except that when you start to unpack it, it's disproportionate to how much we reward later career service. And so someone who works 10 or 20 years at the start of their career has a much worse benefit than someone who works the same amount of years, but happens to do it at later, later ages closer to retirement. Gotcha. All right. So what's the damage here? I mean, these are expensive programs. Sounds like they're getting expensive-er. Uh, how much trouble are states in? What sorts of numbers are we talking about with regard to unfunded pension promises or liabilities? On a national level, just for teacher and other education employees, states have about $500 billion of unfunded liabilities that they're having to pay down over time. And those numbers are growing. They probably are going to grow again uh, in the wake of the coronavirus recession. But that is the money that is sort of like a lingering debt cost that states have that they'll need to pay over time, usually as a tax on labor that they push through districts. Okay, now hold on a second. You said half a trillion dollars, but that's, that's total pension payouts, right? That's not just the unfunded part. No, that's the amount that's unfunded. So the plans owe in total about 1.5 trillion or so. We're using big numbers here, but about 1.5 trillion in total payouts in the future. And to the point I made earlier about how much they've unfunded that, about 500 billion of that is unfunded, which means that they should have had progress towards that that they don't. Okay, so we've got 1.5 trillion. One in three of those dollars is currently not actuarially contributed for. And that bill has got to be stuck either to some other government entity or workers this year and in the years to come. One in three dollars. That's right. Okay. So that's a lot of unfunded liabilities. Who should be responsible for paying it, Chad? So in my mind, the unfunded liabilities should be paid off as a state obligation. It was the state legislatures and governors who uh, created the plans themselves. They set the benefit rules. They usually set the contribution rates as well. And so any hole that's been dug is the fault of the state. In, in about five to 10 states, they either pay all or part of the pension contribution from the state already. But that means there are 40 to 45 states that are essentially imposing a tax onto school districts to pay off those unfunded liabilities. I don't think that's fair. I think that the school districts are not the right entity to pay off the unfunded liabilities. Maybe the school districts have responsibility for paying the, the current benefits of the current workers, but not for the unfunded liabilities. And by shifting the costs from districts to states, we get to start to see more transparency about where the money is going and sort of feeling the pain from the people who actually should feel the pain. All right. So if the education sector were to get rid of pensions, what would be the best plan for them to replace it with? There are a variety of plans. I'm not going to pin myself down to one. There are well-designed defined contribution plans that should be on the table for sure. But I really like what's called a cash balance or a guaranteed return plan, particularly for teachers. What it does, it's legally a defined benefit. But instead of having the formula that I described before, 
it guarantees a fairly conservative rate of return. In the public sector guaranteed return plans, they usually guarantee, let's say, 4% uh, annual return plus some upside if the markets are good. But if the markets are bad, then workers still get that 4% guarantee. And the benefits accrue in a much more stable fashion for workers. There's no uh, huge spikes like we see in defined benefit pension systems. And there's not as much opportunity for accruing unfunded liabilities because you're guaranteeing a, a more conservative rate of return over time. But you do guarantee something. And part of the logic I'm, I'm guessing behind that is, hey, teachers are doing a public service. You know, they're not making a ton of money off this. There's sort of a limit to the upside of the salary that they can make as long as they stay in the profession. So if we want to keep them in there, let's make sure that they have a stable base to retire on. Yeah, I, my my push is that the teaching profession is really large and there are lots of different types of people in it with different preferences. But at the minimum, we could set up from a public policy standpoint a, a plan that nudged them into a, a good path towards a secure retirement. And so adequate savings rates, good investments with low fees, and something like a cash balance or a guaranteed return plan helps take care of some of those aspects of the variety and the volatility of a stock market return. So there's one other question that I, I sort of hate to throw on here in the end, because I actually want to get to healthcare in a second here, but social security, doesn't that help out some of these teachers because they can count on whatever, when they turn 65, they can collect social security? Yeah. So due to a historical quirk, when social security was first created, it wasn't open to state and local governments at all. In the 1950s, it was open to state and local governments, but it was voluntary as a choice. And still, 15 states do not offer Social Security coverage for all of their teachers. That's about 40% of public school teachers across the country, including in large states like California and Illinois and most of Texas that are not part of Social Security. And so they're solely dependent on their state retirement plan. And if those state retirement plans are not offering all workers adequate benefits, then they're even even worse shape than other people who might be getting Social Security plus something else from their employer. So the stakes are pretty high because the safety net that we provide across the nation isn't there for a pretty big chunk of these folks who are really depending on these pension benefits. Exactly. And they are dependent on them. And it's one of the big reasons why the traditional defined benefit system really doesn't work well for most workers. It works well for someone who stays for 20 or 30 years and the pension does a good job of protecting them. But if you're a California, Illinois, or Texas teacher and you only stay five or 10 or 15 years, you're going to be left with not much from your state and no social security benefits for your service in. A public role. And uh, I think that's a bad situation. And there are steps that Congress could take to, to fix it. Let's talk a little bit about healthcare, a, a pretty expensive and timely set of benefits for us to be thinking about. We talked earlier about sort of the, the proportion of total compensation the teachers get from their districts to go to pensions. How big is that for healthcare spending and healthcare benefits? that uh, teachers are getting, and how has that changed over time? So healthcare costs in the public sector have risen, just like they have in the private sector. There are a couple differences in the public sector. One is just coverage. So 
in the public sector, basically everyone has coverage for standard medical benefits. They also are much more likely to get things like dental and vision coverage as well. The actual plans themselves are not that different from the private sector in terms of how much they cost, but the differences are the coverage. So because of the vision and dental, it makes it more expensive. The other aspect is that public sector workers are much more likely to get healthcare benefits even when they retire from their former employer. About two-thirds of teachers are enrolled in retiree health plans that will give them healthcare coverage even after they retire. Sometimes that will bridge them from, let's say they retire at 55 or 60 until they reach Medicare age at 65. Sometimes states also chip in above Medicare even. And so that's another benefit that public school teachers have that most private sector workers do not. When I think about, hey, we need to attract teachers, you know, one of the easiest things that I think you can attract them with is is salary. Well, we've already talked about, you know, pensions take some of those overall compensation dollars and, and, and pull them out. So if pensions and healthcare are growing, I'm just curious about what the power of the teacher compensation dollar is in terms of how much actually goes to salaries. The way I would answer this is that uh, healthcare costs are rising rapidly. They're eating up a greater share of employee compensation. That's true in the public sector. It's true in the private sector. It is worse in the public sector because of some of these aspects that I mentioned in terms of coverage. The other aspect in the public sector, for teachers in particular, is that oftentimes they're only working a 10-month schedule. And so they have healthcare benefits if they want to go take a summer job or some other second job. Uh, they don't have to worry about healthcare benefits, whereas someone else uh, who is earning the same salary, uh, maybe doesn't have healthcare benefits, would have to be concerned about that. And from a, a district leader's perspective, when teachers are saying, man, we haven't had a salary raise in five years, and you want to offer us a 3% cost of living adjustment, it can be harder for the district leader to come up with that salary adjustment because of these other costs that usually don't make the headline. Right. So this is something that I think is really important. We, we talked about in our work, we've done some work on what we call the pension Pac-Man, but the healthcare Pac-Man is the same of slowly eating up the amount of money that is actually going into worker pockets. And so the amount of money that they can spend on things like a mortgage or childcare or taking a vacation is getting smaller and smaller because of these benefit costs that are eating up a greater and greater share of their compensation package. And it's, it's just this growing disconnect between what employers are paying for a worker versus what employees receive for their work. We talked a little bit about what states and districts might do with pension problems they have to deal with. In terms of healthcare, how should states and districts tinker with the healthcare plans that are currently being offered to most teachers to sort of help out with some of these costs? There are a couple of things that I go through in the chapter. One that I will highlight in particular is the retiree health benefits. So Right now, what has been promised, similar to the pension space, is that benefits have been promised to retirees who have some eligibility. Uh, let's say they work for 20 or 25 years, they get retiree health benefits. The problem is that those retirees generally, if you worked for a district for 20 or 25 years, you have a pretty good pension, 
you have a pretty stable uh, work history, employment history. And so uh, those are not the most needy retirees. If we're going to prioritize healthcare dollars, that's probably not the best place to spend it. Similarly, if we're using some of those money to supplement Medicare, if someone is over 65, that's also not a good uh, use of our public dollars. And another front is that because of Obamacare, we have subsidies now to protect anyone under 400% of the poverty level. And so if the retiree health benefits are paying for someone who's retired at 60 because their pension is generous enough for them to be retired at that age, should they get retiree health benefits from their state on top of it? I don't think that's a great use of public dollars. It seems like there's a long list of things for politicians to tackle to really make these systems better. But I got to ask you about the, how realistic some of these reforms are. I mean, it seems to me that in many places, any politician campaigning to get rid of pension liabilities and lower retiree health care benefits for public sector teachers should definitely have a concession speech in hand. I mean, <laughs> how, how hard is the, is the wall between improving these things and where we are now? The politics are very hard. I don't want to minimize that. That doesn't mean it hasn't been done in some places. So in the pension space, there have been a, a range of states that have adopted reforms. So there are about 10 or 15 states now that have some portable retirement plan for teachers. More states are giving teachers a choice over their retirement. More states have done something on their unfunded liabilities and how they pay that down over time. And so there are good examples of that. On the retiree health benefits, that is a harder question. The Probably the one that we point to in the chapter is North Carolina, that they got rid of retiree health benefits for public sector workers, not teachers, but other public sector workers, because of these arguments that it was not an efficient use of dollars. The way that the eligibility rules were being limited was being scaled back to a smaller and smaller group of workers. And so to have a cost that was only going for a small benefit of workers who weren't the most needy workers was something that they were able to do. I do think it's it's useful for politicians to start talking about some of these problems and the disconnect of here's the amount of money that we're spending, here's the sort of bang for the buck that we're getting in terms of employee satisfaction, I think is really helpful to start these conversations and to to get teachers at the table. A lot of these benefits are expensive, but they're not necessarily generous for the majority of workers. And so to help people see that reforms can be teacher-friendly, and it's not just about cutting costs, it is about restructuring for making the, the plans work better for the, the members themselves. Chad, thanks for coming on the podcast and making teacher benefits sexy again. I mean, it's tough to do, but it, it's been compelling. I encourage folks to look for the volume, getting the most bang for the education buck, Chad, thanks for coming on The Report Card. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to The Report Card with Nat Malkus. And special thanks to our guest, Chad Alderman. Once again, the book is getting the most bang for the education buck. And you can pick up a copy from Teachers College Press, Amazon, or your favorite bookstore. Thanks, as always, to the producers who made this episode possible, Matt Rice and Tyler Hoover. And remember, you can subscribe to The Report Card on iTunes, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, leave us a review so other folks can find the show. If you have comments, questions, or topic suggestions, send them to us at ed.podcast at AEI.org. That's it for this episode. I'm Matt Malkins.